Well, this morning sees the uh, 27th instalment uh, in our series in Luke's Gospel. Uh, anyone been around for all 27? None of you. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad you're here today uh, and not missing this one. Uh, more than anything, my desire uh, as week after week after week we've been confronted with Jesus in the pages of Luke's Gospel. My desire is that we would grow in our love and passion and commitment and worship of him, and as we see more of him, that in turn we would become more like him. More than anything else, that's my desire. That's why we are doing this series in Luke's Gospel. And so before we do anything else today, I want to pray and ask Jesus to show more of himself to us so we'd be changed today. Lord Jesus, thank you that we, we have these wonderful records preserved for us, that uh, it, it, it's like we can see what you did, we can learn from who you are, we can be uh, inspired, we can be challenged, we can be confronted with you in your glory, and I want to pray that these words would almost leap off the page today, and it's a familiar story, but let, let it come with fresh power uh, and insight to us. I want to pray you would open our eyes to see you more vividly and more tangibly. I want to pray you would uh, open our minds to grasp more of the truth of who you are and the implications for our lives today. Jesus, we're praying you would change us in some way uh, uh, as we look at you. Amen. Amen. Now, don't know about you, but for me, I think one of the most striking things about the portrayal of Jesus uh, in all of the Gospels, really, is just how sociable he is. Uh, people just wanted to be with him, as well as the crowds who followed him around uh, pretty much everywhere he went. Uh, he was also always getting invited to parties. It's as though he was constantly surrounded by people. I think what's also striking is just how shocked the religious leaders were with the kinds of people that Jesus was regularly mixing with. For example, he, if you remember, ate at the home of a pretty notorious con man named Zacchaeus. The religious leaders didn't like it one bit that Jesus hung out at this guy's house. They began moaning and complaining and grumbling over the fact that Jesus mixed with such blatant sinners. Jesus just turns to them and says, listen, I came to seek and save those who are lost. Another time, he ate with a guy called Levi. Levi had deserted his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish background and heritage in order to work for the Romans. Levi invited a whole crowd of his sinner friends to a party to eat with Jesus, and the religious leaders got really hacked off about that one too. But Jesus just shrugs, turns to them, says, hey, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And the story we're going to be homing in on this week, it's as though the tables are turned somewhat. You see, it's actually one of these religious leaders who has now invited Jesus over to his house 
for a party, for a banquet. The guy's name is Simon, not to be confused with Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. No, this is another Simon. He was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. We're not told exactly why Simon invited Jesus for a meal, but in light of the religious leaders' growing hostility and antagonism towards Jesus, it was quite an unusual and unexpected invitation. And you've got to give credit to Jesus here. He accepts the invite, even though it would have meant walking right into the midst of a pretty hostile environment. I mean, if you'd been a guest there at that particular dinner party, you would have probably sensed a whole lot of tension in the air. You would have been waiting for things to kick off. You, You would have anticipated some kind of an incident before the evening had finished. But no one was quite prepared for what actually happened. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Imagine the scene. Probably the aroma of meat roasting on an open fire, maybe onions, peppers, garlic, spices, uh, and oh, I see people kind of looking forward to the barbecue this afternoon already. Uh, well, well, wait for now, but that's what was happening here. And there are all of these religious dignitaries reclining at the table, kind of propped up on the table, kind of lounging around, debating all the hot theological issues of the day with Jesus right there in the middle of it all. Verse 37, when a certain immoral woman from that city most likely a prostitute, heard that Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, I don't know if you have ever ended up an emotional wreck. I can only think of probably three times where I came really emotionally unstuck, where I just lost it and cried and cried and cried. One time was watching Sleepless in Seattle. No, 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 no. Uh, Only joking. (laughs) Only joking. Really not the case. Uh, Wilson maybe, but not me. Not me. Now, one time was when our son Nathan was born. There was some complications with his birth, and Nathan ended up in the intensive care unit. One minute, I was holding Nathan, newly born. The next, he had been snatched off me by the medical team and taken out of the room. And Helen and I weren't told at all what was going on, which kind of didn't help. So I kind of played out all sorts of scenarios in my mind. I mean, you just do, don't you? It was a pretty grim place to be. So I can't tell you what it felt like several days later when I went to collect Helen and Nathan from the hospital to bring them home. The sense of relief, the gratitude, it was just overwhelming. When I got home, I just found a place on the stairs where no one could see me and I just lost it. I came undone. I remember crying and crying out of relief. I was so grateful. Another time I think of 
was in the early days of leading this church. It was just hard work. Uh, there have been some pictures flying around the internet this week of me and Helen in the early days, number of comments about me with a full head of hair. I mean, uh, this is what stress does to you. I mean, it, it all goes. It, it felt like back then everything was against us. And around about that time, uh, I remember going away to a huge event to help out with the youth work. And I was up there uh, on the platform, uh, speaking, ministering, uh, and stuff. But I remember at the end of one of those meetings, walking around the campsite late at night, just dreading what I was going back to at the end of the week. I kind of felt trapped. Everything in me felt like I wanted to run away, but at the same time, I knew that God had called me to lead a church in Birmingham. I wanted out, but I knew there wasn't any way out. Ended up just collapsing in tears by the side of the road. At the same time, I remember looking around to see if anyone saw me, because it can be kind of embarrassing, can't it, when you become emotionally unstuck. Now, this woman who approaches Jesus is overcome with emotion. And if truth be told, she doesn't care who sees her. I don't know, maybe she's planned it all out in her mind ahead of time. Maybe she's thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to just kind of calmly go up to Jesus and thank him for forgiving my past. But as she gets closer to Jesus, she can't contain herself. She, she, she falls on the floor at Jesus' feet. She caresses his feet in her hands, her tears raining onto his unwashed feet, I guess leaving wet spots in the dust all around him. And then she lets down her hair. No woman ever did that in public in those days. For whatever reason, it was viewed as shameful. But she lets down her hair and she begins to dry the feet of Jesus with her hair. Then she starts to kiss his feet and then she cracks open this jar of perfume, pours it all over his feet. So here she is, lying on the floor, an emotional wreck, crying, rubbing Jesus' feet, pouring perfume, kissing, hair down. And the smell of perfume and the smell of humility and the smell of forgiveness and the smell of gratitude, they absolutely fill the room. As you try and imagine this scene, you might be thinking, well, how incredibly humiliating. What an embarrassing display of emotion. But you need a grasp that this lady has been humiliated most of her life. She's been embarrassed most of her life. She's felt unloved most of her life. She's felt used by others. She's very much felt trapped. It seemed like there has been no way out. And now, perhaps for the very first time in her life, she feels free. And she just gets overwhelmed with a feeling of forgiveness and the opportunity to start her life afresh. 
and she finds she can't hold it in any longer. This uncontainable, uncontrollable torrent of emotion pours out of her. Now, for just a moment, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. How would you respond to all of this? What, what would you have done? What would you have said? I mean, this woman really isn't helping his cause. Maybe Jesus had accepted the dinner invitation to try and cause some kind of a truce with the religious leaders. If you're Jesus, maybe you're thinking, what in the world are you doing? You're making a fall out of yourself here. Maybe you turn to her and tell her to, to go uh, somewhere else and pull herself together. Maybe you'd apologize to all the religious dignitaries for the embarrassment that she's caused. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just allowed her to carry on. And I've got to say, I don't think he was on an ego trip. I don't think he was basking in the adulation of a fan. I think it's more like he was enjoying the aroma of a changed life. A number of years ago now, uh, I spent six months in India. And during my stay, uh, I was invited to visit a church in the slums of Mumbai. Now, the meeting was made up almost wholly of people from absolutely impoverished backgrounds. It was an unbelievable meeting. More than anything else, uh, I've got to say, I I was blown away by the astonishing joy and exuberance uh, uh, as people worship Jesus. It's like uh, these people were so incredibly grateful to Jesus for changing their lives. But I've got to tell you, the smell in the room was awful. <laughs> it really was. It, it didn't help that there was this open sewer running right through the middle of the room. The stench made me feel physically sick. I remember standing there as we began worshipping and going, oh! Then it kind of hit me. God was smelling the same thing. And he was going, that smells so incredibly good. I think that's the way Jesus was that day at the banquet at Simon's house. He loves uninhibited displays of worship. He loves it when people don't care what other people think and just gives him their all. I reckon it's an aroma that brings him real pleasure. Now, among all those wonderful smells filling that room, there was also the familiar stench of judgmentalism wafting in the air. You see, watching from the table is Simon, Simon the Pharisee, Simon the host of this banquet, and he is appalled at this display of uncontrolled emotion. He is disgusted by the whole thing, and he starts to think to himself, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, the word for what kind of woman comes from the word for soil or dirt. 
It's as though he's saying, if Jesus knew the kind of dirt she comes from, if he only recognized how soiled she was. And then just follow his deductive thought process here. It's like, if Jesus was a prophet, then he would know who was touching him. It's not right. I mean, look at her, hair down in public, kissing his feet, lying on the floor, on my floor, and look at him. He's not even flinching. Seems like he's actually enjoying this. Now, hang on a minute. If he lets her touch him, surely he can't have a clue who she is. And if he doesn't know who she is, then ha-ha, he's not really a prophet of God. That's the way Simon's mind is working. Verse 40, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon doesn't say a word. Jesus reads him completely. He knows precisely what Simon was thinking. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replies, kind of all sweetness and light. Verse 41, then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. Neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Now, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Now, you can imagine Simon looking around the room at all of his friends like, where's he going with this? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So, she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Just to say, it's important that you realize here that it wasn't actually this woman's love which saved her. No, she's not forgiven as a result of her love. She's very much forgiven as a result of Jesus love. And what she's doing here is pouring out her humble, heartfelt response to that love and forgiveness. It's also important to realize that Jesus in no way glosses over her sin. You need to understand God is incredibly serious about sin. It's what separates us from him. He hates what sin does to us. He hates what sin does to our friendships, what sin does to our families, what sin does to our marriages, what sin does to our world, what sin does to our relationship with him. Jesus never once condones sin. Jesus never downplays the seriousness of 
sin. But in this instance, he says to this guy, Simon, I know she's got a whole load of sin in her past, but it's all been forgiven. It's been cancelled. It's been completely wiped out. That is why she is the way she is right now. And actually, Simon, that's why you are the way you are right now. She knows that she has been forgiven much. Simon, the problem with you is you think you've got very little that needs forgiving. You see, Simon knew all the religion. He knew all the vocabulary. He knew all the rituals, all the regulations. He uh, attended all of the meetings, did all the right things. But somehow, he had missed the very heart of God. The very thing that this woman had captured. Out of all the countless commands that Simon had meticulously kept his entire lifetime, she mastered the one that's the most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strengths. And she didn't hold back. I want to ask you, how's your love for God these days? Are you loving Him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strengths? Honestly, where would you place yourself in this story? Do you find yourself more like Simon or more like this humble woman? You know, I have to ask myself questions like that all the time. Do I still find his grace amazing grace or do I kind of just find it interesting grace? And am I walking in freedom every day because I know I'm no longer who I used to be? Do, do I really live like my past has been forgiven? And am I pouring out my love to him in uninhibited gratitude or do I hold back for fear of what people might think of me? How about for you? How's your love for God? And while you're thinking about it, how's your love for other people? Are you more compassionate and less judgmental than you used to be? Think about it. Are you becoming more loving or less loving? See, Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much love much. In other words, the the degree to which we grasp how much we have been forgiven affects the way we view not only God, but view other people. Proud, self-righteous people who think that, in all honesty, they don't have much to be forgiven for, who think they are more often than not right, they have real trouble forgiving other people. 
It's like they go through life locked up in this prison of bitter entitlement, saying to their friends, saying to their spouse, saying to their parents, saying to their kids, saying to their work colleagues, you owe me. Listen, I don't care if you're 80 or if you're 13. If that describes you, you are a tough person to live with. And if you're ever going to learn how to love and forgive and live free, then you're going to have to humble yourself and recognize your need for God's forgiveness, your need for God's grace. C.S. Lewis, the writer, the theologian, wrote, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the arrogant, the self-righteous, they are in that danger. It's like when you know that you need grace, you extend grace. At the end of the day, Simon had little or no capacity to love because he had little or no sense of his need to be personally forgiven. Verse 48, Jesus still looking at this woman and now he speaks directly to her. It's like he's reminding her. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? That they're saying, who on earth does he think he is? That only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. Please, don't miss how tragic this is. They had God right there in the room with them. And they failed to recognize him. These people, with all of their knowledge of Scripture, all of their religious activity and effort, they completely miss God. And sadly, I think it still happens today. It still happens today. Ignoring all the rumblings around him, Jesus remains focused on this woman. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in the wholeness that only I can bring. Walk in the knowledge that you've been completely accepted and forgiven by God. Walk in that peace and that confidence every single day of your life and continue to let your life be like this fragrant offering to me. And in light of what Jesus had done for her, I'm pretty confident that's precisely what she did. So I want to return to asking you this question again. Where are you in this story? Who do you find yourself identifying with the most? Simon the Pharisee? Or the immoral woman? 
crazy thing is, both people are looking for the same thing. The, the most ardent moralist, the, the strongest lawkeeper, and the most passionate sinner, at the end of the day, are both looking for freedom. The moral person concludes, I can find freedom and fullness of life if I keep all the rules. The immoral person concludes, I can find freedom and fullness of life if I break all the rules. Both are wrong. Both have embarked on this burdensome salvation project. Both are depending on themselves to somehow deliver the freedom and fullness of life that they're desperate for. And Jesus, here in this story, comes with the power to set both free. And I think there are going to be both kinds of people in this room right now. I think if truth be told, some of us are pursuing fullness of life by shutting out our conscience and breaking the rules, by getting rid of whatever obstacles get in our way. We think that real freedom can be found by doing whatever we want, whenever we want. I think there are also a whole bunch of us who think that God will love us more if we're good, as if our behavior determines God's behavior towards us. Thank goodness it doesn't. Thank goodness it doesn't. Our behavior has no chance of earning our salvation. Thank goodness it doesn't. And even if it did, even if it did, it would make Christ's life death and resurrection, irrelevant and unnecessary. I mean, if our performance, if our goodness could earn and then keep God's favor towards us, then Jesus becomes completely unnecessary to us. Dare I suggest, some of us live like this. Jesus is pretty irrelevant to us because we are still desperately trying to earn our salvation by following all the rules. We tick all the boxes, we make a whole bunch of sacrifices, we try and remain within the lines, we yet attend the meetings, we speak the right way, we do the right things, but there's not a whole lot of joy in it. There's not a whole lot of life in it. And after a while of going through the motions, we end up concluding that this Christianity thing is just not working. And so we return to our default position of pursuing freedom by casting off the rules and chasing the freedom offered by the world. But that doesn't lead to a whole lot of freedom in the long run either. I tell you, both groups of people desperately need rescuing. Both groups of people are in desperate need of grace. Neither morality nor immorality can save you. Being bad can't save you. Being good can't save you. A double rescue needs to take place. God not only needs to save us from our bad deeds, but from the pride and self-sufficiency that comes from our good ones too. 
Listen, what the Pharisee, the prostitute, and everyone in between needs to remember every day is that Christ offers full and free forgiveness from both our self-righteous goodness and our unrighteous badness. You know, I think this is perhaps the hardest thing for us to believe and remain in the good of as Christians. Because some of us struggle to get past those feelings of not being good enough. I don't know, maybe you would say you're a Christian but you still feel pretty unworthy a lot of the time. Some of us live with a sense of guilt and shame that casts this long shadow over everything. And however hard we try, we cannot shake it off. In fact, a lot of people think it's a mark of spiritual maturity to hang on to our guilt and shame. We've concluded the worse we feel, the better we actually are. Which is why the declaration of passages like Psalm 103 verse 12, often the most difficult for us to grasp and embrace as if true for us. He, God, has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Doesn't get much further than that. Or as Corrie ten Boom once said, God takes our sins, the past, present, and future, and dumps them in the sea, then puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. This seems too good to be true. Surely it can't be that simple, that easy, that real. Stop. It is true. No strings attached whatsoever. No ifs, no buts, no conditions, no need for balance. If you're a Christian, if you genuinely trust in Jesus' saving work on the cross, if you have turned from living your way and have said, yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you and live your way. Even if you don't feel perfect right now, right now you are clothed in the completely sufficient righteousness of Christ. Your pardon is full and final. In Christ, you're forgiven. In Christ, you are completely clean. In Christ, it is finished. As pervasive and destructive as your sin is, God's forgiving grace is altogether more powerful. God's grace is and always will be greater than your guilt. It's true to say that there is way more grace in God's heart than there ever can be sin in your past. As the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 5 verse 20, verse 20, this is the message version of this famous well-known verse. Sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. Sin didn't and doesn't have a chance 
in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. And it's only when we truly grasp this that we will want to pursue a different life. Like with the woman in the story, makes you want to live an obedient life, to live a life that pleases Jesus. Also makes you want to be pretty extravagant in your worship. You're not going to hold back. You might, dare I say, even find yourself showing a little bit of emotion every now and again. It's all right. It is not something to suppress or feel awkward about. Actually, it's a natural overflow of a life that's been transformed by Jesus. Look, if you find yourself struggling to worship, to enter into worship, to enjoy worship, to participate in worship, my my guess is probably somewhere along the line you struggle to fully get God's grace. Maybe it's because you still can't get past your guilt. You still inwardly feel you are too bad to be forgiven. Right now, I believe Jesus is wanting to lift off the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation. Those lies of the enemy that have dogged you for so long, those accusations that you're not good enough, you're not worthy, Jesus could never love you. Right now, Jesus is wanting to cut those lies away and set you free to enjoy and experience the weight of his love and his grace. No more shame, no more condemnation, full enjoyment of being a son or daughter of God, living the good of what Jesus has accomplished finally for you on the cross. Or maybe that's not the issue for you. Maybe you find yourself being more like Simon the Pharisee. Very often, the thing that gets in the way of our appreciation of God, our love of Him, isn't our badness. More often than not, it's just our sense we're okay We're probably good enough. We can kind of get there on our own. Isn't that Jesus' point in verse 47? I'll tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. In other words, what blocks radical, untamable love for God? It's this sense that we're pretty good people and God didn't really have to do a whole lot of work to forgive us. And as long as we hold on to those thoughts, our worship is always going to be emotionless. I think one of our greatest needs is to wake up to the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. When you see it, you can't be passive, you can't be apathetic, you can't be casual, you can't be blasé, you can't be unemotional, you can't be hands in pockets detached. You just can't. If you get it, 
You are a changed person. It's not a matter of whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're a thinker or a feeler, whether you're confident or timid, whether you're British or from a more extravagant people group. Now, if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, you will not be able to stop yourself from worshipping him in your own way, but with everything you've got. 